Hello, and welcome back to Getting to the Top, where we interview transformational leaders about their leadership journey. Today, I have the absolute honor of interviewing Melanie Jameson. And I've met Melanie, the co-CEO of Leaders Quest. And Leaders Quest is an absolutely transformational organization that forces us to think about information differently and to think about how we do things differently. And just through my engagement with her, I thought it was such a great organization. And then when she was appointed co-CEO, I thought, phenomenal. This was this is a great time to have this conversation with her. She focuses on expertise on building bridges between different perspectives to enable bold action for a sustainable and equitable world. She leads uh, Leaders Quest's work with the climate champions to drive radical collaboration across non-state actors towards climate goals. And we've worked with, I've worked with Melanie uh, during COP27 and she worked on, on COP26 and, and we're looking forward to uh, COP28. But she also helps companies to navigate purpose and profit, which is such an important thing that we need to do now and build thriving cultures to be a force for good. What I didn't know before having this conversation is that Melanie is a professional singer-songwriter and she spent her early years empowering at-risk youth in marginalized communities through music where she first learned about harnessing the power of voice and harmony uh, to drive sustainable change. So I think such a great, such a great foundation and such a fabulous journey to where she is now. So welcome, Melanie. Is there anything that you'd want me to include in your introduction? <laughs> uh, Raquel, um, I, it's, it's, I've been listening to your fabulous videos um, podcast over the last few days, and um, I was kind of prepared for this moment of thinking, OK, it's good. My bio will be read, but um, I, I wasn't prepared for how it would feel. But it's such a privilege to, to be with you and, and thank you. Maybe the one thing I can add is, you know, coming from Australia, um, I, I've been in, in the UK now for about 18 years, but I still think I have my, my roots very much uh, in, in, in Australia, where a lot of my family is based. So that's the one thing I'd add. Um, but thank you. And it's a real privilege uh, to be with you and to continue many of our, our great conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, she's helping people at the highest levels in some of the most iconic organizations across the globe. To, to have this shift in perspective. And I think that that's so important and required in this time. And I'm really delighted to know that we have leaders like you ushering people through those types of changes because it is the necessary conversation of our day. How do we, how do we move from just thinking about profit and thinking about purpose and making sure that we're making the right decisions for the right reasons, not just for the immediate term, but for the long term as well. So what does that feel like for you in, in being responsible for taking so many people through that journey? So I think, you know, for me, the way that you describe it's really key, you know, that the global economy is being called to change in ways that, that, that we've never even imagined. 
Uh, and, you know, I think there's so much effort being put into that change. And we have so many of, of the solutions and, and the technical um, skills at play. But I think where we really often experience the big gaps is really around the human software, if you like, the, the mm -hmm. human behaviors, the mindsets, um, the skills that you've just described to really make the most of that change. And I think that um, we, we can't afford to keep getting stuck. Uh, and that in, in my experience, I think that, you know, one of the key things is that that leadership and that collaboration are kind of like accelerators uh, and that we might have all of the infrastructure in place ready for a change. But without that sort of sense of purpose, of agency, uh, of alignment, uh, of a willingness to go together, you know, further, faster, we, we can't make the most of all of that, you know, good, good um, uh, foundations that are being put in place for the change that we need. Yeah. So how did you, how did you move from normally I ask, I ask people, how did you start? How did you discover your love of this, of this journey? But I'm, I'm dying to understand how you moved from music into, um, into this. So tell me about that. And then we'll go back to what you thought you do as a child and then we'll, we'll get into the journey. So my uh, career path's definitely been quite windy uh, and um, I started off in Australia uh, as a singer-songwriter uh, and I come from a family of musicians. My grandfather was a jazz drummer, uh, my uncle was a drummer as well, my mother was an opera singer. Um, she did opera at school, she didn't become a professional. And um, through that family, uh, they had all got to a point in Australia um, where they really needed to make a, a choice and actually a sacrifice to choose family and a steady job. Uh, and, you know, I felt that that sense of loss in that, that side of my family. Um, they had, uh, you know, very um, sort of, you know, big um, passion for music. And uh, my grandfather had chosen to work in a tire factory after playing on stage with some of the jazz greats in, in Australia with um, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, with uh, Louis Armstrong, you know, so he did really well. And then in order to make a living, he needed to uh, go off and, and run a tire factory. And, and that happened through that side of my family. And um, when I was young, I wanted to play the piano. I studied classical piano. Um, I sang a little like my mother. Um, and when I went to university, I, I met a whole bunch of musicians and I just formed a band. It was nothing I'd ever thought of doing professionally, but it really, uh, you know, sparked some, um, you know, big energy for me. And I spent a number of years as a professional musician, but of course I had to make a living just like my family before me. But I really didn't want to do something that felt out of alignment with, with that. Mm. And um, I was lucky enough to to find some work with different organizations where I could support young people who were in marginalized communities. Um, I worked with a lot of young people who were, and this is both in Australia and then in the UK, uh, who were excluded from school in pupil referral units um, from very diverse backgrounds and, you know, really incredible young people, but really struggling. Uh, and that might be at, at home or, you know, with, with their peers. And um, I just, uh, you know, I, I very organically found a way to help uh, bring music programs to those different communities, not the music I'd studied, you know, so it was really about finding what what local music resonated. So often it was uh, hip hop or rap or something that I knew very little about, but actually that was, I think, part of the gift uh, mm -hmm. that it wasn't me teaching, but actually holding a space for young people to really 
create and to find a sense of identity both individually and and in groups um, and I did this for for a number of years uh, and I think you know in those days I talked very much about empowerment and I think this was very much about helping people think about who they are and who they want to be in the world uh, and I watched young people grow incredibly and, and be able to reintegrate back into school and into their communities really from finding their own sense of voice um, and now I look back many, many years later and I think it's it's leadership. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the work I do, but with a very different audience. Uh, yeah. But of course, in those days, I wasn't thinking of it like that. But I think it's so important and, uh, that the issue of, of empowerment, the issue of doing something that feels authentic, um, the, the issue of aligning what you're passionate about with the work that you do and having purpose wrap all of that together. Um, really would have given you such a great sense. And I love that idea of you're doing music with these kids and you don't, it's not, it's not sort of your core music, but you're learning along with them or you're learning something new as well. And you're getting a gift in this transaction. Yeah, I, I think that's key actually. And, and I think that's also key to helping leaders learn. You know, we don't mm. teach leaders. Um, you know, we create a space where leaders can come together to learn, to cross pollinate. There are so many different styles and approaches to leadership. Uh, and I think um, I look back and the work that I did with young people was very similar. It was recognizing that um, creating the space to allow them to go on their journey, I think was the key differentiator for me rather than teaching them, you know, what I knew. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I think as well, we need to be aware of how we learn and how I think when when something feels like it comes from you, you are so more likely to embrace it versus someone comes with an idea and says, oh, this is what you should think or this is what you should be versus holding that space and, and finding the people who can help you to hold that space so that you figure out what do I think? What do I care about? What do I think is important? Yeah. Right, right. We, we talk a lot about um, what we call the inner game of leadership. And, you know, I think in, um, in the world, in our education system, we spend a lot of time and rightly so on the outer game, you know, mm -hmm. and that's the, the, the technical skills and knowledge that we need to do all the different roles that we, we play in the world. Um, and we don't often hold as much time and attention on the inner game of leadership. And, and we think about this uh, at Leaders Quest as the difference between being smart and being wise. Uh, and so I think we really try to create a space for people to develop their wisdom, for, the, for them to think about who they are, where they've come from, um, the things that are important to them and the communities that they serve and then how to really bring that into their organizations and, and the work that they do. Oh, phenomenal. All right. So then now let's get to your growing up as a little girl in Australia. Uh, did you think, okay, I'll be a musician. This is, this is who, this is my identity. This is who my family is. Um, or did you think, I'll, I'll, what were you thinking about? So I, I was flip-flopping about, uh, on the other side, my dad was a journalist, a foreign correspondent, and um, I grew up mostly watching him from behind the television, uh, where I used to go and look for him because he was uh, based in, in different regions in the world, particularly in the Middle East, uh, and really spent uh, his career telling stories about people who were living in conflict zones, um, but really showcasing the best of humanity 
in in really difficult situations, but showing that um, you know it's it's often in cases like that where human beings really step up yeah. uh, to you know change change their own lives and, and those around them. And so I found this you know deeply inspiring. Uh, it did take him away from our family, so so he left when I was young, and I didn't see a lot of him growing up. Um, but I think, you know, I often look at my my two parents and I talk about getting voice and harmony from them. And, you know, the harmony came from my mum's family, not just music, but also this sense of wanting to do good by the family and giving up a sense of identity uh, in order to, to serve. And then on my dad's side, this idea of voice uh, yeah. and both his own voice and, you know, really pursuing his purpose uh, to the extent of, you know, leaving his his young family, um, but also uh, finding ways to uncover the voice of, of other people, you know, often a kind of um, what we call at Leaders Quest, the invisible giants, you know, the hidden um, people who are doing incredible things around the world who have so much to offer in terms of helping us understand, you know, how to bring about change. So you're flip-flopping and then you're, you're figuring out, is it music, is it... Is <laughs> Is it journalism? Is it writing? They're, they're probably the things that I, I played with. Um, and so I studied communications at university while in a band. So I think I did a little bit of, of both. Uh, but I, I very quickly learned that um, being a journalist was, was not for me. I went off and I did some, uh, I supported my dad on some documentaries. I found them pretty, uh, pretty grueling from a, an emotional point of yeah. view uh, and also recognizing that I wanted to stay and and uh, support the people that we were meeting and find yeah. ways to, to help them. And I, I think that everybody plays a different part in an ecosystem and so telling the story is very important. But I kind of wanted to stay and, and, you know, see what more more could happen in order to to kind of bring about the change I wanted to see. Okay, um, and so, so I, then I left journalism and jumped into music. <laughs> and so then, how did you move from music? How did you move out of music? Because um, this would have been something yeah. in your DNA. Would have been not just passion, not just purpose, but something you know, generations behind you. So how did you how did you manage to move out of that? It certainly wasn't intentional, um, but I think I got to the point with my music where. Uh, you know, music had become a business for me. It uh, mm. cost me more money than I made. It was you know, <laughs> a lot of hard work. And I'd, I'd done it, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd created a couple of independent albums, so, so nothing big. Um, and I, I really felt ready for something new. I'd also done a lot of work locally. And so whether that was in Australia or in London, um, I had spent a lot of time focused on local communities and I really wanted to have a more global experience. And so I was really lucky to have a, a friend who had uh, studied coaching and uh, she needed a guinea pig. I got the chance to have some coaching sessions and um, she helped me name what I wanted in a, in a few words. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that point, I thought there was a very long journey for me to make a shift because my experience had been that career changes take years and years and I had to go and study all these things and do all these internships. And I had a long list of hurdles, actually to get me from where I was to, to where I wanted to be. And um, she helped me name what I wanted in a, in a few words, which was really just an international communications role supporting communities. Mm -hmm. And once I 
got that out. I am, um, it's, it's sort of one of the very old fashioned ways of finding a job many years ago, looking in the newspaper. And there was this role for Leaders Quest and I didn't know what it was about really, but it had travel. It sounded exciting. Uh, and so I started interviewing. Um, and three weeks later, I had my first day of work on the ground in Mumbai, uh, working with our grassroots fellowship program, which was just incredible. Um, one of the, the sort of most, um, you know, memorable experiences in, in my career. And it's where I recognized this, uh, the, the fact that the work I'd done for so many years was the, you know, building the foundations of understanding what leadership is, uh, even though it, it looked different on, on the outside. I like that your own journey to transition out of music came from this internal journey with a coach. And I always I highly suggest coaches because I think, again, they focused on, and, and I've interviewed some really amazing coaches, Georgina Terry, uh, Sharon Christopher, among others, who can help you to uncover what's already inside you and, and to put it, like you said, put a name to what you knew that you wanted, but just maybe couldn't find the words for. And figuring out what does that look like for me and, and how does this thing that I want to do manifest itself? So you are helping others uncover their own internal journey and that started with you uncovering your own internal journey. I think that's right. And I think it's something we've got to keep continuing. I, I realized that I, um, uh, I, you know, I can't get comfortable here, right? I got to keep yeah. thinking about what is the next yeah. iteration. Um, I, I love the idea of um, this metaphor of, you know, when your ceiling becomes the floor. Uh, and I realized at that point, you know, for me, it was like the ceiling was way up there. How do I get that international job? Uh, and of course, so many other iterations since then, but each time kind of realizing what what next. And I think one of the things that, that we talk about in our programs is that we go on the journey with the leaders we work with. You know, again, we're not sitting on the outside and pointing and saying, we've done this before, here's the answer, you know, yeah. where we, we learn alongside them. Oh, I love that when your ceiling becomes the floor, because, you know, years ago, years ago, we were um, looking at some data about um, women in leadership. And we were looking at the fact that while there aren't enough women um, at, at the C-suite, there are many women in middle management. And so I think one of the speakers described it as not just the glass ceiling, but the sticky floor where, you know, you get in. You get in and you just stick to that floor and you don't you don't get come in thinking about well what's next what's the next level and and how do as you put it how do i get this ceiling to become the floor because i need to keep getting to the next level and that's all a part of not just my own career journey but the greater good because if we have more diversity and equity and 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 more participation across the board, we are going to have better results. Right. It's so true. Um, I, I, I think you had Hala speaking yes. of course, last week, and I think she had some very powerful data that I'm afraid I'm not going to remember. But this sense of wasted human resource, you know, there yes. is so much capacity, so much incredible ingenuity, imagination, empathy, all of that, that we are not making the most of. 
yeah. and you know to really think about how do we unlock that in order to you know solve the the biggest challenges of our time yeah you know i was just um reading this week and it was so surprising to me that the first female prime minister was appointed in like 1960 i was like oh my gosh that's just the other day you know there are tons of yeah. people walking around who were who were born before that, and I was just like, oh my gosh. You know, I think sometimes we don't necessarily, as, as frustrated as I am with, with where we are as a, as a global community in, in terms of equality, sometimes we don't realize how much ground we've covered in a, in a reasonably short space of time, and that we just need to keep doing that thing where we look at the ceiling and how do we make that the floor? Right. It's so true. And, and depending on which time scale we want to look at for, you know, which part of human life we're trying to change. And, you know, if we think about the Industrial Revolution as one example, uh, you know, a few hundred years, it's taken us to get to this point unconsciously, relatively. So in terms yes. of the impact that we've had in the world. Uh, and, you know, so I, I have many wonderful colleagues who, who like to talk about the fact that they are, you know, the COP has been going on for longer then perhaps they've been alive as one example. I'm sure that you know many of us have heard that. And, and that's really true. And I really recognize that sense of frustration with the pace. And I also have to think, you know, 27 years in trying to change the biosphere consciously, it's, it's you know, we're doing, we are making the dents that really matter. And I think if you keep trying to, you know, shine a light on the change that is happening um i my hope is and i think the data shows that we are going to be surprised with where we can get to faster than perhaps we might expect at this point uh, so i totally get we have we have a, a value at our leaders quest that we call patient ambition mm. you know and we are we are you know really um impatient for change but that we recognize in order to create the space for change we need to have you know, a big ambition, but patience with that too, because it does take time to rewire the way that we live and rewire human behavior and, and human culture. Absolutely. I like that. I, I like it somewhat because I'm, I'm, I'm never about patience. I have none. I have none to give. <laughs> You'll see in my, in my two children, they have none. And it's because I, I had none to, I had none to give to them. However, I think it is about recognizing that incremental change and understanding that that incremental change is momentum. And we shouldn't discount that out of hand because it means that we are making progress. And, and the Conference of the Parties, the UN's biggest climate conference that has been going on, the 28th iteration will take place this year. Um, that, you know, it's baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. And yes, we want to run. And yes, by 28, you should be running. However, there's a lot, there's a lot that we should look back on and recognize in that, in the building of that momentum. If we don't recognize the progress that we've made, we, we run the risk of, of eliminating it because we don't recognize that we have done something good. Right. So, yeah, oh, so, I, so my hope is that, oh, sorry. Okay. No, 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 go ahead. You, you tell me about your hope because I want to understand, like, so you get into this first role at Leaders Quest, like, how do you, how do you make that, that ceiling, the floor, and, and how do you sort of cycle through the roles at Leaders Quest to now be the co-CEO? Mm. I mean, I, I do have to say I um, never expected this. 
Uh, <laughs> so it was quite a surprise. Uh, and, um, you know, I've, I've been at the organization for 13 years. I, I came in with a communications role uh, and then I, I quickly evolved to do uh, the whole spectrum of our work. And um, when the opportunity came up last year, uh, initially I'd thought for a, a solo CEO, uh, I, I didn't put my hand up and I didn't think I would be the right person. Uh, and when it came, um, when the invitation came to be a co-CEO, suddenly everything changed for me. And, and I think this is really interesting. You know, I think that I'm really clear on certain things that I feel quite confident in and other things I really think I've got big gaps. Um, I think that's part of being human. Uh, but, you know, my sense um, of wanting to do this role was really about seeing the opportunity for partnership with my co-CEO who I've known since I began. Uh, and we have an amazing relationship. And I think it has really opened up the opportunity for, for me to step into this more. And I, I recognize that, you know, there are different co-CEO models in different organizations. Uh, men and women have done it. I know that uh, there there is a bit of a trend, I understand, with, with women doing this role. And sometimes I wonder about that as you talk about the sort of um, the progression. Uh, what What feels great to me is about doing it as a team. Yeah. and recognizing that I can do that as a team and not feeling I need to do it on my own. Um, I, I think I'd be very, I mean, the number of times we've been in this role now, two months, and we say to each other, we wouldn't be here if the other wasn't here. And, <laughs> and I think that feels really cool. I yeah. think it's really great to be able to do this. This is a duo. But, you know, to, to, to be devil's advocate a little bit and, and just going back on, on, on what you're saying, that women tend to, we tend to be more collaborative and tend to, you know, want to do those kinds of things. Um, is it is it us not necessarily stepping in? And I, I absolutely believe you 100% that you saw this role and you said, you know what, co-CEO is what feels right to me. But is it that sometimes we're not bold enough as women um, wanting to pursue because we feel like, oh, well, you know, I shouldn't or, or something feels inauthentic about that or is it that um, we don't see enough models of of soul CEOs as women and so we think oh well there there are gaps to fill or is it that we tend to undervalue our our contribution and thus feel like there needs to be more shoring up so Talk me through what your thoughts are. And I appreciate, and I absolutely believe you. I've known you long enough to know that your judgment is impeccable. So if you believe that this was something you wanted to do as a co-CEO, but I also want to make sure that we are mindful about making those choices and not just making those choices because we're afraid of a challenge. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a really great question, and certainly there are you know many many incredible women in solo leadership roles, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it's just the co CEO model is quite a unique one, and interestingly, in different uh, sectors, you know, and so you know, in in finance, there have been a lot of co CEO models, and with a with a lot of men as well. Um, so I think the, the thing I'm reflecting on at the moment is collaboration. And, and the reason for that is, you know, I think as we continue to evolve the work that we do at Leaders Quest, we recognize more and more that uh, we've got to work in radical collaboration with all sorts of organizations. 
Um, and sometimes that means thinking about, you know, how, what is it the best that I can bring? How do we work with people who might feel quite different and might be some, you know, tensions, organ rejection? Um, and I've been reflecting a lot on this in terms of, uh, you know, what it is that we need to achieve in the world. And so I'm just playing with that as I think about this question of, of leadership, certainly for this organization. Um, so I recognize all of the data that shows that um, women often hold themselves back for different reasons. And that might be for uh, putting their hand up for a promotion, putting their hand up for a pay rise. Um, and I think that's really important for us to, to have, you know, open eyes to. Yeah. My sense is this choice is about uh, doing things together is better than alone in terms of collaboration and the mix of skills. And um, I, I think that's why I'm doing this, but I think it's a really good uh, call out. And I think that um, uh, women have to keep encouraging each other to kind of really, you know, look at ourselves fully yeah. and to, you know, not feel afraid from stepping up um, and, and into, you know, all of who we are. I loved, and from the first time I heard the term radical collaboration, and I think maybe this is a way of helping us to understand how that works, but describe um, from your perspective, radical collaboration for me, because I, I feel like it is something that is so necessary mm -hmm. in our world today. And, and maybe these co-CEO models are um, some of the ways that we can we can radically collaborate. But you know, it's funny in, in one of the things that you said that really surprised me. When you said that the role for you was a surprise, I'm surprised by that because I think by the second or third time I met you, you're so dynamic, you're so thoughtful and smart. I was like, oh my gosh, this woman should be running this organization. And so when the announcement came, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, fan this is fantastic because, you know, you, you have that, that passion, that, 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 that compass that I see where this is going. And this is such, you know, you're so clear eyed about the future and, and the kind of future we need to create. I was like, oh my gosh, wonderful. And to hear that it was a surprise to you. And I, I would, I would bet that many of the other people who've engaged with you, it was absolutely no surprise when, when, they, when the notice came out. So, you know, how, how, are, we, how are we as, as such phenomenal characters, like someone like you, how are you surprised by this? But tell me about the radical collaboration and then tell <laughs> me about how could you miss that you were such a natural for this? So on radical collaboration, um, the way I see it is that it is collaboration across difference. So across different types of people, across sectors, across communities. Uh, and um, it's radical because it's challenging, it's essential, uh, and uh, it's not being done before. You know, I think we're very good at collaborating with people who are like us. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it really requires um, bridge building uh, and, and, you know, being willing to to let go, to open up, to share, 
uh, to face really difficult things that, that come up when we work with with communities that are very different. Um, and I, I do see the the co-CEO model and the leaders, leaders quest culture um, as a kind of microcosm of that yeah. um, because it is really core to our DNA. Um, on the surprise, <laughs> I think it goes back to this organic approach to my career in the world. I didn't know what I would be doing from when I was 20 to 30 to, and um, I've never had a traditional career path. I don't even really know if they exist for maybe, you know, I say that sure. I think everybody, when I ask them about their, their path, everybody has a really unusual, unique path, even if it might seem like uh, on the outside, it's a um, more standard approach. So I think for me, I never quite knew where I would get to next. And I didn't fit uh, one category. And so I think it's more about that rather than thinking I wasn't good enough, but okay, just good. more that I have been I'm very led by what I love to do. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm very lucky that each time I find myself in a position to do something I just really love. Yeah. And uh, I'm never quite sure where it will take me next, uh, but I figure that's okay because I'm enjoying it and it all, and I think that's where the surprise came from. I hadn't thought what next because I was really loving what I was already doing. Very nice. I love that. And so tell me about what's the best advice you've been given? Ooh. <laughs> so I'll give you the best advice, but there's also another side to it. Sure. My dad, my dad used to say, if you have a job you love, you'll never work a day of your life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it comes from Confucius. It's it's not his uh, his quote. And it has been really fundamental to you know the choices that I've made. Uh, but it also drove me nuts for many years because I kept <laughs> thinking, "What's the thing I love? I don't know what I love." And flip flopping, and always feeling like I would never find my place. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then I heard the opposite advice which apparently was given to uh, you know, a well-known Australian actor, Russell Crowe. I've ah. never quoted Russell Crowe before, but um, <laughs> I was told that his dad said to him, apparently Russell Crowe loves cars. And so his dad said, if that's your passion, don't turn it into your job. Go and ah. do what you're good at. Yeah. <laughs> so this oh. is the opposite. So he went off and did acting because he was good at acting and cars are his passion. Now, don't quote me on this. This is this is what I've heard. <laughs> but what I find is this is a very interesting, you know, dual approach. And I realized that for many years, I really struggled because I was trying to find the thing I loved. Yeah. Uh, and and sometimes that made it difficult. I fell out of love with that thing, which was music. Yes. Um, so it's it's an interesting piece of advice, but I guess maybe the, the lesson for me is not to take things as so black and white. <laughs> I told my dad many years later how difficult it had made, you know, some period of my life. He's like, well, well maybe it was just not right. <laughs> Why did you worry about it so much? <laughs> that is, that's, that is, you know, I, and I've heard that, that, you know, um, do what you love and you never work a day in your life. But I also know several friends who are either chefs or artists and They've fallen out of love with food or fallen out of love with with art because it's work now and it's it's you know you have to produce and you have to you you have to do this thing that was once just something that was in your heart so i i kind of feel like i agree on both fronts you want to do something that you love enough because that is 
You want to show up every day enthusiastic and excited about it. But there are certain things that are so core to you that, that may be keeping that safe and keeping that separate from work. Make sure that it, it remains something that's, that's pleasure and good and that you always look forward to doing because it's not, you know, deadline. You gotta, <laughs> you've got to produce this thing. Yeah, so I think, yeah. I, I, I think that's good. I also loved what you were talking about, you know, with radical collaboration. And I had never heard it described in that way. And I think that that was a piece missing for me about it being bridging the gap. And it's almost about if you are too comfortable in your collaboration, that maybe it isn't radical collaboration. Maybe you need to get, there needs to be a, a feeling of discomfort. And I actually um, attended this talk that Michelle Obama had done. And she said, if you're at a table and everyone looks like you and is saying the same things, you're at the wrong table. And I feel like maybe that's what radical collaboration is about. There has to be that tension because that's where all of the, the best ideas come from. That's where all of the, the change and the new, the new ways of thinking would come from. It can't just be, well, yeah, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. That's radical collaboration. It just isn't. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's so true. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, change comes from that creative tension. And, yeah. and I also think that um, I have seen collaborations that have got stuck in the other way. So yeah. I think there's a real um, interesting work to be done about the right type of diversity that is going to challenge and enable progress. Yeah. And I imagine that at different points in time, you've got to so you 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 expand to have greater diversity, you make progress, but then you've then got to think about, okay, well, we've got comfortable. Where's the next edge? Yeah. But if I think if you do too much too soon, and this came up in some of the work that we did with um, Adam Kahane, who is a wonderful author on collaboration, um, that uh, if you try to just include everybody all at once, you can get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's a real balance to to, you know, playing that edge, I think. Yeah, and just, you know, incrementally sort of bringing in new voices, new new ways of thinking, and to make sure that you have enough, um, enough of a solid idea so that you are, you're building around a core versus, well, let's just throw everything at it and see where we land up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think there are some wonderful examples where, you know, I think people often think you, if you want to be really inclusive, you're going to slow everything down. And so, you know, if you exclude, you'll go faster. And there are some wonderful examples that I come across on the ground that, that demonstrate you can do both. But ah. it is about doing both well. Yes. Oh, I love that. Because there's the, 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 the African proverb that says, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I absolutely believe that in this, certainly in, in climate action, we have to go far and fast and we have to figure that out. And so we, we can't sort of, um, uh, we can't, we can't sort of sacrifice speed for, for distance or, or the other way around. I think what it, it may, you know, there's that triangle that says, you know, it's either going to be fast or good or, or, or cheap. You can, and you can only have two. So the, the thing that we're going to sacrifice is, is cheap, apparently. And I'm okay with that. If, we, if the transition is expensive, but we end up in a much better place, then why not? Why not? It'll create jobs. It's not like we're just 
bringing cash. It'll create jobs. It'll create new opportunities. It'll create such a bigger, brighter world. Mm-hmm. And the money's there, right? It just yeah. needs to be directed in, in the right way. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me uh, across your career, you know, your very career with, and especially given the work that you, you're doing with Leaders Quest, I'd like to end on what are you most proud of from your career? What work you've done? And I know that um, some of the stuff that you've done, you can't necessarily talk about, unfortunately, but um, I've, I've been in, in some in, incredible rooms with you. So I know that you guys are doing phenomenal work, but what are you most proud of that you can talk about? <laughs> it's a very interesting question. Uh, and my mind is flitting. I wasn't ready for this. Um, you know, some of the things are, are the kind of big conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, for for those who might be aware of, of um, the conversations leading up to COP27 uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh, um, I was really privileged to support on some work with, with non-state actors, including you, Raquel, on um, how non-state actors, so businesses, investors, cities and regions can um, address climate losses and damages. And I think this was one of the first time those conversations had been had because, of course, you know, the, the very big contentious and, and rightly so argument ha- has been about how the, the global north, how the rich countries support um, uh, the the most vulnerable countries that are suffering climate losses. And so I think that felt, uh, you know, very edgy and and, and meaningful in very small closed doors to support the the process leading up to COP. Um, And then I think on the other side, I would look to, you know, some of the programs that we do on the ground, the quests that we uh, hold. Um, you know, one of my um, my favorite quests was in South Africa uh, the year before COVID, actually. And it was with a, um, a technology company, a group of, of 25 global leaders uh, on the ground in Joburg for a week. And um, it, it's not so much a kind of single moment, but that program over the week of really exploring um, you know, life and leadership at a, at a very broad level in South Africa, and it's such an incredible place to yeah. learn, um, you know, to learn about um, identity yeah. uh, and, and you know, to learn from people who find such incredible agency and, and, and courage um, and, and to also grapple with, you know, working with some of the big companies, how they undergo transformation. So how does transformation happen in different societies? So we had a, you know, a very sort of um, macro view of, of South Africa, but then we also work with the leaders to look at what is the role that technology can play uh, in, in the digital transformation underway around the world, but particularly in South Africa. You know, how does um, technology support informal workers and, and the gig economy? Um, and holding conversations that were, you know, so um, personal and, and intimate with with young people who have um, you know done incredible things to to pull themselves out of very challenging situations to get themselves into you know tech jobs and um, you know what is it this technology company can do in terms of thinking about how it navigates that purpose and profit 
that you talked yeah. about at, at the start and some really exciting um initiatives have come off the back of that so i'd say that's another uh sort of you know two quite different examples that i can't quite choose from <laughs> fabulous fabulous and i actually got married in south africa so um one of my favorite places on the planet very very special yeah yeah yep, yep. and and so much history both you know good and bad and so and i think that there's a there's an honesty to that, right? Because that place has had so much innovation and ingenuity and activism, but but so much sadness and so much um, to overcome and still working through. So I think right. really, really interesting um, place to be and and you feel you feel the that that dichotomy when you're there. It's like in the soil. Right. Um, definitely. All right. So much to offer the world in terms of all yes. of the themes that we're grappling with now around real diversity and inclusion or democracy. You know, I mean, I think they have so many gifts to share with us in terms of what they've been through and learned. Absolutely. Absolutely. And such, I mean, this, this has nothing to do with anything else, but so, such incredible style. <laughs> One of the most... <laughs> stylish places I've ever been to everything from you know the coffee shop to to how people dress to the way that they do um construction everything's just uh, a lot of a lot of like style and and this sense mm -hmm. of, of of being an, an an elegance I absolutely love South Africa so with that I want to thank you for sharing this time with me and thank you for sharing um your 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 journey with us. I love, you know, how do we, how do we make the ceiling the floor? Because we just have to keep climbing up and we have to recognize that once you, you know, you enter the next level, it's how do you get to the next level, but working on something with passion and, and feeling that sense of purpose and being willing to collaborate radically and understanding what that means and how, you know, it isn't just about, okay, well, I'm reaching I'm reaching out to someone else, but it is about making sure that that collaboration does include a bit of tension so that you know new things are happening as a result of that collaboration. Thank you so much for, you know, helping us to understand about creating a space to understand how you think and how you feel so that it is more of a discovery journey. Your leadership is more of a discovery journey than, than something that someone is telling you what it should be or telling you what it is. And also looking at being a CEO from a different perspective, you know, maybe maybe a co-CEO model is a good model, depending on on where where you're where you're comfortable and where your your skills lie. And that's that's also a different way of looking at things, and and certainly an example of radical collaboration. <laughs> So thank you all thank so you. much. Oh. <laughs> no, well, I just want thank to say thank you, Raquel, and thank you for all you do, you know, to really lift women up and, and share their stories in the way that you do. It's such um, inspiring work. Thank you. It's, it's, you know what? This is, this is my passion, and so it is not work. <laughs> That's probably why it works, <laughs> because, because I'm, not, I'm not, like, under under a mandate to do it but i absolutely love it because i think we have such phenomenal voices and such incredible opportunity in diversity in in the way that we approach things in the way that we think in the way that we execute and i would just love to see a more diverse and inclusive world for all of us so that we get the best 
out of everyone. And so with that, I thank you for joining us for this episode of Getting to the Top. And I encourage you, if you're not already subscribed, to subscribe and join us for the next conversation. And you will find that hopefully, like me, you learn something new each and every single time. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.